When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, I got a new podcast coming. It's called Theory. Don't you know? This is Theo Rossi. Our world is changing. For many of us, it'll never feel the same. The important thing to remember is that we are all in this together. And that's some of what I want to talk about on my new show, Theory. We're going to discuss the things that no one ever does. The real talk, the sacrifice, and the struggle that everyone goes through. My life has kind of put me in a unique position to see things honestly. This is Theo Rossi, and my new show, Theory, launches on April 8th. Officially on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Uru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Sam Vecini of The Athletic, college basketball, NBA draft expert, and had a lot of fun stuff to talk about from the recent developments in the G League and the NCAA allowing players to use their likeness to going through some of the players that I've actually watched film on and comparing notes a little bit on those players and, and a lot of other really fun stuff in between. Episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Remember to use the promo code PODCAST1 to get your sign-up bonus. And this episode runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, Danny, it's uh, it's April 30th. We're recording this. And it's, what, quarantine week six? Something like that? And the two most valuable things in my apartment are now LaCroix, because LaCroix stops me from eating everything in sight in my kitchen, And coffee, because coffee is always one of the most important things in this household. So it's very, uh, very interesting to me trying to figure out, okay, how do I how do I get back into the world after this ends? How do I what am I most excited to do with my life after we can start going out again? Because I feel like I forget what life is like after this. It's going to take some adjustment. And I also think that there will be a a period of time, at least for me, where I will be more reluctant to do things that, you know, I, I think it's until there's, you know, until there's a vaccine, whenever that is, and we don't know if or when that's going to be, then there will be, you know, I'm just not going to feel super comfortable doing certain things. And that can be a challenge given our lives and everything else. But also, we don't know the timeline on that. I... It's interesting. So you and I last recorded in, I think that was mid-March, and no games have been played, but a lot has actually changed in more your world than mine, 
because of the shift that happened in the G League and then some of the recent news with the NCAA. And I was what I was just wanted to start with your thoughts on where things are right now and where it might be going. So, I mean, you want to talk about the G League's pro pathway? Yeah, the G League's uh, pro pathway and then the likeness right. stuff. So, yeah, let's start with the G League pro pathway stuff. I think that I'm all for it in every way. Like, I'm all for kids having more options. I'm all for kids having the opportunity to get paid in a way that doesn't put their potential careers and eligibility at risk. Because like, look, let's be honest, a big reason the G league initiative initially was announced in 2018. The big reason why they couldn't get any of these kids to do it last year when LaMelo ball and RJ Hampton decided to go overseas to Australia is because the money wasn't good enough, right? They were going to offer $105,000 and that was going to be taxed. And if you go to the NBL, it's a better deal to be frank. Colleges are often offering a better deal. Like if you're talking, you can get a hundred grand, which is what Brian Bowen was offered, right? Like we have this in the FBI transcripts and you're going to get that untaxed. That's better than getting 125 grand taxed by the G League. So a big reason why this system and this idea hasn't come to fruition until now is the money. I think that it's really hard to make the money work on a deal like this. And the more that we can give these kids real options in regard to making money to play basketball, which I think they're absolutely, um, I don't know that I would say entitled to, but they certainly should have the opportunity to do so. I think I'm all for more pathways like that. I do just in general have some very real questions about the structure and this entire uh, the entire system that they're building in the G League because to be frank, there are a lot of people even like around the G League that are still trying to figure this thing out. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of different elements, a lot of different thoughts, and and my general take is pretty similar to yours, which is that I am happy that another pathway exists. I am happy that these young men are going to be given another choice that is potentially viable for them. And I like that it gives them the opportunity should they choose to do so and have offers to like, you know, get shoe deals or to, you know, to make money outside of just that G League contract and playing in America might, might open some doors. Also, then you don't have to deal with the adjustment. I mean, I think a lot about Brandon Jennings. I mean, that's feels like a long time ago because he had the language gap along with the geography challenge and when he was playing with Roma. Manuel Moutier, another example. Yeah, exactly. And and so Australia helped bridge some of that because Australia, while very far away, has has the English language part going forward and, as you said, had the money which helped initiate this change in the G League. But like you, I wonder about how this is going to be executed and it's also a little bit unnerving to me that the most significant part of this in some ways might be if it delays the implementation or agreement on the age limit. And while I'm hopeful that the G League and the NBL and all of these other options will do as right by these young men as they can, my firm opinion is and has been that it would be better to just have them in NBA organizations. And there was a time, you can read Jonathan Abrams' amazing book, Boys Among Men, if you want an idea of some of the challenges that arose when high school players were able to jump. 
the one of the biggest changes in the entire sports world that has happened since then is a broader professionalization of professional athletics. So having nutritionists, having support staff, and it, you know the league. Remember, the, a generation before that, players were flying commercial, and there was there were just it was really bare bones, and they had to figure all this stuff out themselves. And I mean, in, in Abrams' book, they talk about players sleeping on veterans' couches and all that. We're because of the money and because of the incentives, we're well past that. So I'm I'm fully support this being a path. I hope that people make the right decisions, whatever those are. But if this delays actually getting them in the NBA because they're like, oh, well, look, this is a perfectly fine solution, then I'm still happier that it exists, but it, it, it would dull it a little bit to me. So, yeah, I think that the first point that you brought up in regard to the age limit and potentially bringing that down so the kids can go directly out of high school, that's, to me, the most interesting, not the most interesting part of this, but it is an interesting part of this and it's up there for me in regard to being the most interesting. The reason that I say that is if you think about the negotiations that have to happen for that, that has to be collectively bargained, right? And to understand why it hasn't been simple for this thing to change, I think that you have to understand just the incentives at play for both the side of the NBA and the side of the players, right? Because that, that's ultimately who want, who has to come to an agreement on this to let 18-year-olds back in. And if you look at it from the NBA side, the people I've talked to across the NBA, you know, this rule was initially put into place because – it's really fucking hard to evaluate high school kids. And there were a lot of kids that were coming in that a weren't ready for this. And they were taking up the contracts of veterans and they were taking up the NBA had to devote significant resources to developing them. And B like the NBA just didn't have those resources and kind of threw them a little bit to the wolves. Right. And I think that the NBA does probably does not have, I'm not going to sit here and say that I speak for the NBA league office and for all 30 owners, but I don't know that the NBA has like a distinct interest in this. And then you talk to people that are in scouting departments across the NBA and what they will tell you about this G league professional pathway program is like, they're not super excited about having to, evaluate these kids now who are going to be essentially sheltered and hidden away in Southern California for all of next season, because they're not going to get to compete in front of competitive environments. They're not going to get to compete for something because all the games they're going to be playing are exhibitions. They're not going to get to go to college and go to a new environment where you're around a lot of different cultures around a lot of different people and have to learn to interact with a lot of different people. You're not going to be around, uh, you know, a whole lot of different players that come from different backgrounds than you, because this team again is basically kids that have been in the AAU system for, and been the elite of the elite in the AAU system for the last, you know, four years of their lives, five years of their lives. So, you know, I, I can tell you that NBA scouting personnel thinks that it's going to be harder for them. Now, do I really care about that? I personally don't. I, I don't really care that my life is going to be harder because I have to figure out how to get intel on these kids now. But I think it's much more important that the program exists from a moral perspective. But from an NBA perspective, there are concerns about having to evaluate these kids and having to do it properly. 
on the player's perspective, think about who is in charge of the NBA Players Association. It's veteran players, guys who, you know, don't love it that rookies come in and essentially, you know, take up a certain percentage of the league that seemingly continues to grow every year. They certainly don't want guys that are 18 years old coming into the NBA who definitely are not among the best 400 basketball players in the world taking, let's say, six or seven contracts from veteran players who are their friends who are worthy of these contracts and who have earned these contracts over the course of the last eight or nine years of their careers. They are not going to sit here and argue for high school kids to take contracts over 30-year-old guys that they know and like. So who is arguing for the one and done to end is my question. Like who is yeah, trying it, to a, make this happen? It, the the urgency is not pressing on either side. And that's also the, the reporting that is out there is that the owners are asking for a pretty big concession from the players in terms of access to medical records and um, per- potentially participation in the combine. When the players don't care enough about this to consider it even a sacrifice. Because remember, they're opening the pool up against themselves. And right. that is a, you know, they're they're just adding adding people to the mix. They're, you know, for, as you said, they're competing for roster spots. Also, remember, it's playing time. It's everything else. And uh, those players might take a little bit more time. So then you have more roster spots tied up in players that aren't playing which or, or aren't ready to play, which is a challenge and more headaches for veterans. Like there, there are a lot of reasons why, you know, from, a, and the other weird part is it's from a moral perspective, if you want to call it that, if you want to say that's the reason the players should do it, because remember these current, the, the people who would benefit from this are not yet in the players union because they're not NBA players. Is that? But I, I do think that the NBA players do feel like there is a moral perspective. I, I agree, that but they it's, want. but are they going to make material sacrifices to do it? I, I I don't think so, and that's why if the owners kind of see it as a you know a such a clear benefit for the players that they're going to make a concession, it's like well no, that's not the way this is going to work, and it is a, a a very real challenge because the other thing to remember is there aren't many avenues for the league and players to change elements of the CBA outside of CBA negotiations. And so that also creates an incentive. So if there are things that the owners want, and this is really their only opportunity, well, then it, it, it benefits them to at least ask for it. And if they if they don't get it, then you we could discuss how, how they would potentially move off of those positions. But from a tactical perspective, if you only have one time you can ask for what you want, you're going to ask for what you want during that time. Yeah, totally agree. And again, like you said, there's just not enough incentive for players to actually give something up. There's and, just no way that that should happen. Right. And so so let's talk about the other part of the developments that have happened. And this part I'm less familiar with because the G League thing came out and I, I did a bunch of reading on it, which is the recent move by the NCAA, you know, following the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit and everything else to allow players to prof to to make money from their likeness while still a collegiate athlete without knowing all of the nuances and details i'm not even sure if all those are are known or public yet i'm interested in this as kind of another another way to 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 bridge this gap that it looks like is going to persist so yeah only the ncaa could release news totally upending its 
uh, name, image, and likeness rules and make it more about the guardrails that they're putting into place because guardrails was like the big buzzword on the call. Then make it about, hey, we're making the big fucking systemic change that you guys have been asking us for our entire existence. We're finally making this concession. Here you go. Like the NCAA just makes so many mind-numbingly bad decisions from a communication standpoint, from a rules standpoint. The whole organization is a train wreck. Having said that, I'm intrigued by this step. I think it's a positive step in the right direction, uh, at least. I am heavily skeptical about the way that this is going to be implemented, if only because they have already said they don't really want like shoe company money involved. Uh, they don't want uh, money to be an inducement for recruiting, which like good fucking luck making that happen, right? Like there, there's just not – the way that they're going to go about introducing this makes it seem like they're trying to come up with a solution but not actually able to implement said solution because they're going to try and put up so many walls in front of them to stop them from doing it. The brand is strong. The brand remains strong with the NCAA, man. They are uh, – they are a train wreck. Like I went on the lead a couple days ago, uh, the athletics, great podcast. So please, uh, go check that out. I went on the lead and I literally called the NCAA just like a bunch of ghouls. Like, cause they are, they're ghouls. They are, uh, just people that have no idea what the modern ecosystem of basketball looks like. They are people who have no idea what, uh, the modern student athlete cares about, in my opinion, uh, especially the high level one that is going to play professional sports. I get that the NCAA is like in general a positive uh, experience for many student athletes that are below the professional level, but it should not be this hard to allow the people that are actually capable of making money off of their name, image, and likeness to go out and make said money off of their name, image, and likeness. Right, and building building an economic system off of un, off of unpaid or lightly paid labor always creates some let's call it some friction. I, I think that's I think that they can and it can it can create some really scary, dangerous, adverse incentives which have been in play for a long time here. Yep, no question, absolutely no question. Let's move on to the 2020 draft. We still don't know exactly when that is going to occur. Uh, another development that has happened between. Last time we recorded now is I've actually watched some film, which is fun. So we could talk about that a little bit. And and, uh, I want to actually start with a part. Well, it'll relate to this. So Nate and I were recording Dunked On on Wednesday, the episode that came out on Thursday. And we were talking about the Knicks. And he brought up a question to me that I thought would be interesting to ask you, which is pretending – if you pretended that R.J. Barrett, the prospect – so we no gained information from the year he played in New York – would you prefer like so if you were if they were both on your on your draft board would you have last year's rj barrett above or below this year's anthony edwards i would have rj barrett pretty clearly at number one on my board this year okay and uh and so what what inspired actually that 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 might be wrong i would very strongly consider Lamelo ball okay over him but i'm also probably a little bit higher than on Lamelo than some people are but he would be in the mix with LaMelo, basically. So I will I will cede the floor to you on explaining your rationale, and then I will explain my own. I will tell you I am on the other side, but not, like, vehemently so. So 
part of it has to do with the fact that I think that, and let's talk about the intangibles first and like the off court stuff first. RJ Barrett is an insatiably like win hungry person who only cares about basketball and wanting to be great at basketball. Um, That's not to say that Anthony Edwards doesn't care about basketball. I just trust RJ and his drive to be great at the game more than I trust Anthony Edwards, who, by the way, I don't believe that Anthony Edwards has ever been on a winning team in high school or in college in basketball. So that that's concerning on some level to me. And like, if you're Anthony Davis, where Anthony Davis's high school team lost a lot of games and then you go to Kentucky and you dominate, that's one thing with Anthony Edwards, Georgia should have been better than what they were this year. And he didn't really perform. Um, That's not all on him. Anthony Edwards is still also very early in his basketball development. He really came to the game a little bit later than what some prospects do. Uh, He played football a lot when he was younger. And, you know, I think you can see that just in regard to the way his physical frame looks. He's six foot five, 225 pounds and is just enormous. Uh, He guys like bounce off of him whenever he actually does decide to drive the stuff that is impressive to me about Anthony Edwards is that he is a much better finisher than RJ Barrett. Uh, He is a uh, physical athlete who can rise above the rim and score. Despite the fact that Georgia shot like 29% from three around him, he was still an above average finisher in half court settings this year at the rim. Uh, If you look at their defensive ability, I thought RJ was not very good on defense last year. RJ is still at least one to two tiers above what Anthony Edwards showed on defense this year because Anthony Edwards just did not defend this year. He has every tool to defend in a way that RJ Barrett does not defend, but or in a way that RJ Barrett might not. But Anthony just the the level of the level of give a fuck from Anthony Edwards this year on defense was not there. <laughs> it just was not there. And ultimately, this comes down, I think, to what you believe about the shot. Edwards has that like hitch at the top of his shot that I think he's going to have to work on. But I do believe he has touch. RJ Barrett, I think, probably has a little bit less touch, but probably has better starting mechanics. Ultimately, what makes me go with Barrett is just the understanding that I think that that dude wants to be great. I think that guy legitimately wants that in his repertoire. I think Anthony Edwards likes basketball. I think he wants to be um, really good at basketball, but I don't see that same insatiable like desire in in Edwards where he is like solely singularly steadfastly single track minded toward basketball. And that's what I'm betting on. Like, I think that they're very similar. Like they're both like inefficient two guards that are gunners, right? That you're sometimes going to play at the lead guard. I think RJ is a little bit better of a passer, but I think Edwards isn't a like terrible passer. So I'm betting on the kid as much as anything. It's notable how little we disagree on, on a lot of this. So I think the, from what I know, the mental makeup elements at both in terms of the reputation that you hear but also in terms of what you see on the court is a is a real difference i thought 
Barrett was both a better and more willing passer, which matters. He's a better, more aggressive rebounder, which shows effort and intensity and, in certain cases, recognition, depending on, you know, there are lots of ways you can get a rebound, and depending on what tools you have and everything else, it could be there. And I, like you, prefer Barrett's defense. I think that he did a better job actually caring. So all of those elements, I, I'm in pretty strong agreement with you on that. I'm actually, I'm, I, I see the gap in passing as being larger than, than you do, which, you know, but not, not dramatically so. Like, I actually like that part of RJ's game. I was surprised at how much I liked it, considering how much I disliked a couple of very specific parts. But the reason I yeah, go for... honestly, I, I might have undersold that. Like, I actually do really like RJ as a passer. The reason, so, but... All that said, the reasons why I would go with Edwards are, are twofold. And they're sort of counterintuitive, but when you think about how I'm low on both of these guys, I think it will actually make some sense to people, which is both of them had trouble shooting at the collegiate, collegiate level. We'll, we'll use just three-point shooting. Barrett shot 31% on seven per 100 possessions. And Anthony Edwards this year shot 29% on 9.3 per 40 minutes. Sorry, they're both per 40 minutes if I said that wrong the first time. And, but, and I, you know, I didn't watch every second of every film, but of every piece of film. But what I noticed between the two was that Edwards' shot selection was way worse. Like, Nate ranted about how, like, Edwards has some, oh. of the worst, some of the worst shot selection he's ever seen. It's definitely up there. Some of that is the context of the team he's on. And, way worse. And everything else. <laughs> so... A basic point is, if two guys are shooting about the same percentage, and one of them is doing it on worse shots, then one of the bets that you're making is, will he take better shots, or will he continue to take bad shots? And I think, I don't know, but I think by virtue of improved teammate quality, improved teammate shooting, and different coaching, not that Edwards had bad coaching at Georgia or anything like that from what I know. But I I think that and the just incentive to figure this out that Edwards shot selection will get better and that will improve that will improve the the numbers and improve some other elements there. The other the other part of it is that I think there's a difference between and I brought up uh D'Angelo Russell in the uh, RJ Barrett discussion I had with Nate yesterday on the idea of can what you're bad at be improved? And my I, Barrett absolutely can become a better shooter, and I think he has to. And and but I think that Edwards, by being rougher around the edges, by not being as polished, that gives him more room to improve without the transformational stuff that's necessary for him to be really good. Like I think they both have to make the same change to be really good. My instinct is it's slightly more likely for Edwards. I like his. I think I like his shot more mechanically, and I also think his shot selection was way worse. So there's more room to improve there. So. Like, you know, if he can get a little bit shiftier, if he can get, you know, you get more education using his body and you, you talked about how he's came to the game later and 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 in some ways, honestly, that he is less obsessive about it in I you're totally right that in most circumstances that obsessiveness goes to positive places like that that's you know it, it can be you know there are all sorts of stuff there's a current documentary going on about that that talks about an obsessive nba player um but with edwards i think the idea the idea that he has more he has more left to get to like an expected value from an expected value perspective that is something that i do value so it's like the idea that rj barrett i think has done a lot of work to make himself 
as good a version of his, as of the basketball players he can be at this point. Whereas Edwards has done less of that. And so I kind of feel like, well, then there's a chance that he could be more than that without this crazy stuff. So it's a really weird argument of like, he's worse, but he's worse in a way where he could be better. But I, that's how I feel. Yeah, I think I'm always going to bet on the guy that is just going to live in the gym. Yeah, and that, you and know that makes, I mean? that like, makes sense. Just... A lot of the times you're right. Like that, that is a, you know, if, if we both think these players are very close, that is a, it is an easy tiebreaker that often does a whole hell of a lot more than break ties. Yeah. And I think that having said that, it's all philosophical. Like, would you rather bet on the guy that is just like obsessive about this? Or would you rather bet on the guy that came to basketball late? I actually like really think that's a cogent, coherent argument. Like, I don't think that those are, uh, I don't think that's a poor idea on your end. I I think that that's like totally reasonable. Well, and I was thinking about it in terms of one of the other ways that a player can be undervalued. And this is not true of Edwards, but it kind of gets at this idea of, I was thinking about Mitchell Robinson. And like one of the big questions with Mitchell Robinson was uncertainty relative to competition. Like his physical tools were amazing. And I remember I watched that game when he I watched a game where he just shellacked a bunch of rando Louisiana high school kids. And I, just, I, I was able to watch that film. And I wasn't thinking about, oh, he's grabbing rebounds and scoring points. It was, he looks like an NBA potential athlete as a high schooler in Louisiana. And right. there, the, that can sometimes be underrated as well, which is just, where are you as an athlete relative to that? And it's, you know, like that doesn't always work. There are lots of times where NBA caliber athletes just straight up can't make it work in the NBA, either because skill level or mentality or everything else. But that is a, a basic test that, you know, sometimes get, can, I'm sure they're, they're, People like who are more analytically, who are a specific type of analytically focused, who would are probably rolling their eyes at me right now. But there is a basic threshold of like, can you get by your man if your man is an NBA caliber athlete? That is important. Right. No, I think it's super important. I think positional size is also super important. I think that positional just like strength is super important. And you know, I think that people associate the fact that Anthony Edwards is like this football player. Uh, body in a basketball playing you know game right i don't know man like you might be able to convince me rj barrett is stronger than that dude rj barrett is enormous he is barrel chested he is strong he like embraces contact in a way that you know like another part of this is that i mean anthony edwards a lot of the time this season was just very perimeter oriented like he was very uh very much decided to, I don't want to say float, but to settle for the jumper, right? And with RJ, it was never that. It was always attack, attack, aggression, aggression, uh, sometimes to the detriment of playing with Zion fucking Williamson, right? As like RJ Barrett's problem is that he thought he was the best player on a team when Zion Williamson existed, right? Like, I don't know, man. Like, I I like the aggressive guy. I want the guy that is just – I I just trust that dude to go to battle with on a team, man. Like, I'd rather – I would rather have that guy, I guess. It's a totally reasonable stance to take. Still lots more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first the message from Bet Online. Might think with no 
NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, that there is nothing to bet on. But you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on from their online casino to poker and blackjack as they are bringing the Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can wager on. If you're into entertainment betting, you could still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Check it out, bet online, and use the Podcast One promo code to let them know that you came from us and get an awesome sign-up bonus. And you can visit their website or use your mobile device. You can go computer, mobile, I use my computer, but whatever's good for you. And join today to get that welcome bonus. Podcast One is the promo code at BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Let's jump to, to Obi Toppin. Toppin starred at Dayton this year, a very, very unusual route to the pros where he straight up wasn't recruited by any D1 schools out of high school, then went to a, I guess, what would the right term for it be? Like a, a, a prep school? Like, um, went basically went somewhere else, also grew, I think, like three to four inches, and then ended up at Dayton and became, I believe, your pick for National Player of the Year. And yep. I, you and I have talked about Toppin on, on like, you know, off, off the podcast a little bit. And I, I think what I, what I find so interesting about him is that the theory behind it, like his place in the modern NBA is sound, but then I also wonder like his, whether, like where it goes from there. Like, I think the, the offensive stuff though is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, just in terms of the background, right? So he went to, I believe it was like three different high schools, went to Heritage for his freshman year in Florida, uh, Melbourne Catholic for his sophomore year in Florida, Ossining in New York for his junior and senior year, and then didn't have any Division One offers coming after his senior year. So he did the prep year at Mount Zion in Baltimore. And from there went to Dayton where he redshirted for a year. Yeah, that's right. So didn't really start playing basketball until last season uh, at the high or even at like the Dayton between mid and high major level. Right. So Toppin was a guy last year that I talked to a couple of NBA scouts and they would have liked their team to try and like tell Toppin to stay in the draft and like they would stash him or like put him on a two way. Right. Because the way that Toppin closed the year last year was extremely impressive. He was uh, very, very, very good uh, at the end of the year, probably averaged something like I would venture it was probably like 16 points and like eight rebounds uh, for the last like, you know, 10 games of the season. It wasn't like a crazy number, but it was a good number. Um, then this past summer, I saw him at Nike Basketball Academy out here in Southern California, which is this event where all of the best high school players, all of the best uh, college players, all of, uh, you know, just a big group of athletes get together. And then, you know, some NBA players like Bradley Beal and Devin Booker will come in and DeMar DeRozan will come in and like play runs with these college players. Right. Obi Toppin was, in my opinion, probably the second best player at that camp behind Cole Anthony. I thought Toppin was really, really good. And you could see that the shooting had improved, that he was taking leaps as a roller in the way that he rolled and the way that he could handle the ball. I had him as a first round pick coming into the year. I was like, okay, this guy is going to be real. Now 
I did not think he was going to win national player of the year. And I did vote for Obi Toppin for national player of the year. Um, he is probably the most diverse offensive big man slash like forward in this class. He's someone that, and this is easily translatable because the guy that he played for at Dayton, Anthony Grant was an assistant under Billy Donovan for many years, but particularly in Oklahoma city and brought a lot of NBA level concepts to Dayton. They basically ran a lot of high ball screen sets, a lot of horn sets, where they had Obi, you know, picking and popping, picking and short rolling, uh, running dribble handoffs, denying dribble handoffs and turning and trying to drive, uh, getting them on the wing and allowing them to create some stuff. He was essentially playing an NBA scheme at Dayton uh, and thriving in it already. He's a really good passer. Uh, I think he's going to shoot the ball at a high level, having hit 39% from three this year. But the big thing is he's just an above-the-rim finisher in every single capacity. This dude, uh, I believe, was fourth best in the entire country this year at finishing uh, at the rim in half-court settings this year. Just a total monster in every single way uh, as a finisher. And I am uh, a big fan of the offensive translation. And, And I think that... For the Warriors particularly, uh, I think that you can make a case that a lot of his skills make a lot of sense for them. Yeah, I mean, what what I found intriguing about Toppin is that he's in many ways kind of a, a, a culmination of a couple of different movements that have been going on for big men in the NBA. So he, when we you and I were talking about Toppin offline, we were talking about, like my comparison to him was Dwight Powell. And Powell also, you know, a, a talented, a vertical athlete, also a, a, one of the best role men in the entire league in terms of both timing and the speed that he can get to the basket. Also, really good running the four in transition, which was another strength of, of Toppin's for me. But what makes Toppin different than Powell is that I think he has a lot better judgment and capability with the ball in his hands. And yeah. he also, I think he has more confidence. And can shoot. In, yeah, and has confidence in his jump shot. And so I don't love... Toppin's back to the basket game against NBA talent just because they're so much bigger and stronger and it worked it worked on at on Dayton I you know it was it was so weird watching his film and just seeing you know somebody who will not be that kind of back to the basket dominant in the NBA doing that but the tools that you saw in his games both in those moments and in others made me more confident that the uh, that even losing that the rest of it will still make sense and a lot of times when a player has to adjust their game, their strengths, because what they did best is unavailable anymore. I mean, you could Adam Morrison would be an extreme example here. J- Jimmer Fredette would be another one. Then that becomes a concern, but partially because centers aren't used in the same way and partially because I like the other tools more with Toppin. I don't have that fear there. So that's the overwhelming positive is that I think, you know, he's not perfect and I don't think he's going to be dominant near in the same way as college, but he can absolutely be a functional and versatile piece, which is versatility is something I really like. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, with the Warriors, like I find him interesting in that I think you could play him next to Draymond Green and that would be a really great fit. I think that you could play him like at center next to Andrew Wiggins and you would have issues defensively. You would need to find like someone who can protect the backside of the rim. But as long as you do that, like I think you can play him as like a five Uh at times like I, I'm a it, it's almost like it's like if John Collins was a better shooter 
almost to me. And make better. Uh, I think and, and was probably... able to do things with the ball in his hands. Like that's that's the other the other thing yeah. that I find different. But the concerns are somewhat similar, which is if we're talking high level basketball like conference finals, NBA finals, I think Toppin's the defensive flaws will be a challenge. Now, so and and, and you and I have talked a little bit about that well, before. Let's, yeah, so, let's talk about what they are though. Because the thing that I struggle with with Obi and why, like based off of the offensive things that you and I just outlined, realistically, we should have him like second or third in this class, right? Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Just based off of the offense, I mean. Not, oh, yeah, the yeah. The defense okay. is why he's lower. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just based off of the offense. I haven't watched everybody yet, but from what I've seen, yeah, that seems fair. The problem with Obi that I see is his hip functionality isn't great. Uh, he struggles to drop his hips in space to like cut off an angle from an opposing ball handler. It almost always just goes into like recovery mode where, where he uses his great leaping ability to either contest or try and block a shot. Now, at the college level, that works. At the NBA level, what that's going to lead to is defenses having to collapse and help to help him out and creating open shots and creating rotations, right? Which right. is how yeah, and, and, and teams it, at that level end up with really, really open shots. Another way to think about it, and you've discussed this well in a few different contexts, is just because somebody is a good athlete or a great athlete at one part of athleticism doesn't mean that it translates to everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, there, aren't many, there aren't a lot of people who are generational or, or special or whatever in, ev- in every element. And so like for him, I like Toppin as a vertical athlete. I think that his straight line speed is also very good, especially when he tries, which he does most of the time. And that, But that doesn't mean a guy is great laterally. That doesn't mean a guy changes directions well. And those are the two things that yep. are, are big concerns. And Sort of like a little bit about what we talked about in the Edwards-Barrett conversation before, the way to bridge that gap so, – so it's hard to improve. It's hard to – you know, it's, you, there, I'm sure there are exercises and coaches and all that can, and kinesiologists and everything can get guys better at that. But the other way to do it is instincts. And remember, Toppin is already 22 – and you know he, he, he there's a lot of there's a lot of growth that needs to happen, but the amount of work that has to go into him even becoming an average defender is a lot. Yeah, like he got away with a lot at Dayton to where like honestly in college I would say he was like a slightly below average defender. Like he was not a disaster there because the athleticism was so great because right. the court is a little bit more condensed. Like it wasn't like a total nightmare, but. There are enough holes there defensively, like in regard to very specific things that you need to play defense at the NBA level that concerned me. Actually, concerned me like quite a bit. Right. And so a team might get into the challenge of what this is, this is part of the reason I brought up Dwight Powell when I was watching the film is that what made Dallas a lot more viable defensively was finding somebody like Kristaps Porzingis, who is a great rim protector. And then you could just kind of make do with with Powell, just kind of handle him guarding fours or whatever. Or the other way you could do it is through just a lot of other personnel. And some teams, some general managers, might find that that's just not worth it. That there yeah. aren't that there aren't that many players who can do it. And you're also looking for them anyway. Like you know, it's not it it isn't that you need something unusual to pair with him in terms of. Like, oh, okay, this type of player wouldn't, you know, they're being underutilized. Like, you could, you, there are certain times where 
a team, it's actually a real benefit of zigging when other teams zag, is that sometimes the players you need are, are more available. I think a Boris Diaz are a good example of this. Like where certain teams can use somebody like that and other teams just have no use for them. So those players, tall guys, tall guys who can really defend the rim and can also shoot enough to be respectable are always going to be in demand. And so, and also with Toppin, we talked, we've talked about how it's, it's the lateral, it's the change of direction stuff that isn't great. That means that you might not want him in a switching system unless you think that he can hold his own in ISOs maybe better than having to to read and adjust, which is a possibility and would actually be really interesting to test. Yeah, so let's kind of talk about this practically now in terms of like what it means with specific teams, right? Like with Golden State, I think that Dre would get a little bit frustrated early on, but I think they have the defensive infrastructure to where it could probably work. Uh with Minnesota, if you put him next to Carl Towns, I am going to shit a brick because it is going to be – can you imagine having to watch Obi Top and Carl Towns and D'Angelo Russell try and have to score 150 points every night? Like it would be great, but they have no chance of stopping anybody. Yeah, especially you're probably going to pair those guys with Malik Beasley. But yeah, it's – it, yeah, and not that Beasley's like terrible defensively or anything like that. It's just like you're asking a lot from your two and your three, and you're not getting a you know like a defensive force at the at the, likely the two. Yeah, that that's a a real challenge, and you could make a similar thing if like the Hawks got a high pick, and and a couple of other teams. And also remember that you could theoretically pair. I am sure some might turn to this like, oh, you could pair Toppin with a with a more traditional center. But the problem there is then he's more of a perimeter defender all the time. And I think that brings other things to expose. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it's Toppin is going to be a really interesting fit in today's NBA. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, like he is such an incredible offensive fit in today's NBA. And he is such a tweener because the tweener hasn't been removed from the NBA. It's just slid down a positional level. Like it used to be the three and the four. It's not that anymore. It's now the four and the five. Like guys that aren't quite big enough or good enough rim protectors play the five, but aren't quite quick enough to check fours and like run around screens and play like super strong help defense. Like, that's the kind of like tweener nature that Toppin fits into. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how an NBA team decides to work around that in a right. way. Right. And Toppin, like Dwight Powell, also has the possibility when you think about the offensive tools that they bring to the table, and I think Toppins are better than Powell's, of course, is that another part of this might be I brought up the idea that probably don't, depending on how Toppin changes his game changes between now and let's say 26, probably don't want him closing games that matter. But there is a lot of real estate between that and not being an NBA player. Maybe he's your five off the bench who you give five to 10 minutes playing with, you know, playing with starters. So he's kind of like a bench plus, you know, more in this like sixth man mold. And he having him on the floor fundamentally makes you a hard team to defend. And it does all that, but you're but you're not intending for him to be in that closing lineup. Very valuable player. Now, those if he's playing the five, then there are a lot of guys that they're you're competing against for those minutes when the supply at that position is already already going haywire. And if you start putting players like Obi Toppin in the mix, then it's gonna go even more haywire. But because his offensive tools are very high end, then I think it becomes a more viable option. 
So if you're thinking he's not a guy that you're going to close with, like, do you have him as a top 10 guy in this class then? Yes. In this class, yes. Um, I haven't I haven't seen everybody yet. I haven't watched everybody. Well, and I think there's a chance of it. It's just, and, and remember, there is a, a, a gulf between being that guy in a conference finals and being that guy in a regular season. You know, like there are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are a bunch of teams every single year that you could face and Obi Toppin playing in your closing five isn't going to be that big of a problem. Not you, you can handle that right. all day long. And and there are there are plenty of teams that get fat every year off of the bottom 10 in the league. And I think Toppin is going to, especially because of his offensive tools, is going to be really useful in those. But then when the game gets slower and defenses get smarter and offenses get smarter, then it becomes a bigger challenge. And not every player has to be a stud in those minutes. You only need a couple. And 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 also, with considering the way Toppin has improved over the last couple of years, maybe some of these things we're concerned about, he just gets better. And I something I like about Toppin compared to some of the other players in this class, and we'll get to a couple of them pretty soon, is that I can see a way that he is valuable even if he's imperfect. There are other players where it's like, if it doesn't work, they're just... Like the the team is just kind of screwed. Like it's just there isn't a lot to do with it. But with Toppin, you know, off he can he can set screens. He can be a roll guy. He can be a pop guy. He can run the floor hard. If he plays fewer minutes, I'm guessing he'll play even harder. Then okay, you can work with that. But if it's so, I'll, I'll transition this into somebody else that I've, I've I haven't finished my film on him, but I've been watching him, and that's Anyeka Kongwu. And Kongwu is intriguing for a bunch of different reasons. He has, you know, he's seven, around a seven foot wingspan, but his jump shot's very shaky. He's smaller than most NBA fives, and he's also not as long as most NBA fives. So, like with a Kongwu, there's a, there are plenty of things to like, but it's kind of like, well, if that doesn't work, then I don't know what he is in the NBA. With Toppin, I think there's something there, even if, it, you know, like the. 50 to 25% outcomes, I think, are better with Toppin than a lot of guys in this class. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, it's really hard for me to envision a world where Obi Toppin is not an NBA player. Now, it's hard for me to envision a world where Onyeka Kongwu is also not an NBA player. But, you know, someone like a Alexei Pokashevsky or a, uh, you know, a Jaden McDaniels or something like that or a RJ Hampton. Like there are very clear pathways to where these guys fall out of the league. They could also be really good because they have great physical tools, but it's like pretty easy to imagine that too. Right. And like, I would say the same thing with, with Wiseman, like it would be stunning to me if he wasn't in the league, like just because his tools. I totally agree. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's merit to that, but so let's get to a Kongwu and he, Every year, and this will come up, I apologize for the, those of you who listen to Real Jam Radio and Doug Don, thank you for your listenership. I will bring this up whenever Nate and I get to a Kongwu, which could be a long time from now, which is I have a specific way that I watch prospects, and this might actually become a piece soon, which is I watch – first I do un, what I call unfiltered synergy. So I watch basically just rando possessions, offense and defense, and then I watch a full game, usually against somebody that I think could be NBA caliber competition – and I don't look at their stats at all. I don't look at I don't look at how many points they scored, how many rebounds they had. And because I separate myself from college basketball during the year, I genuinely don't know. Maybe I know a little bit like, oh, people think this guy is good. But I and, and like in your case, we talked about top end, so like that. With a Kongwu, I was st- 
stunned at how good how like how good his like post up stats were and his efficiency stuff because when I watched the film, I didn't see that there. I've now watched I'm midway through the next stage of it, but that margin was bigger than with almost any guy I've seen in the last five years. What were you surprised about? Were you surprised that just based off of his skill set, because like he's not a guy with like advanced post handle. He's well, not a guy with like I didn't love um, his touch. You know, like I mean, I, I, th- I thought that like so him having I think it was like a one point two points per possession on post ups was shocking to me because I when I watched his post ups again, one of the games I watched was against Washington. Washington has a better front court than most teams that USC played against. He, he he was, you know, biffing some layups and everything else. And granted, that can happen in a given game. We're dealing with a small sample. And, you know, the random film you watch, maybe he missed a couple of those shots. But I didn't see much there. Obviously, his finishing on dunks and all that is, is very, very good. And he runs the four hard in transition, creates opportunities that way. But the mix that I saw in the, in the parts of the film that I watched... It, it looked to me like it wasn't anything crazy, and then you look at the some of the some of the isolated things. He also like there's the funny quirk that like he has like a really a really high points per possession on spot ups, but that was actually largely because he was getting that spot up. The guy was closing out and he was driving, and I'm like, oh, it's not that he's actually shooting well. It's just that that is how they classify. Possession. No, yeah, he's definitely not a shooter. No, yeah, definitely not a shooter. Um, there is some there. He's like a non zero potential shooter like right if he I, like started it, knocking it, down like and, and like, short corner jumpers like I, there's a world i like for for players like a kong Wu, i like a a more set shot because it feels like when you think about a low usage big and how they're going to get jumpers it's generally release timing and release height are not the big problems you know, like you, there's there isn't usually this guy flying out to you and closing out. It's usually like, oh, right. they they chose to help off somebody else, and so even if you have a little bit more of a sundial jump shot, as long as it goes in, it'll work. And I kind of saw some of that from a Kongwu. So, in regard to what you're talking about with the finishing, you know, he did finish with like a 62 percent two point percentage. Um, I can pull up the numbers while we're looking at it in regard to like his percentage of shots made at the basket this year i would imagine that it's pretty strong to be honest but if you go and isolate that by like tier a opponents on ken palm you will see like it drops off down to like i think it's like 50 54 percent yeah from two point range like it's not just that this dude is like knocking down everything from two point range it's nothing um you know, just looking at like the zones here uh, on synergy, like he is certainly like a high efficiency finisher at the basket. Like there's not really a not really a question about that. Um, if you look at the half court as well, he yeah, again, it's like all red, like all very, very positive, high end, super efficient finishing. So. It's it's kind of hard for me to isolate. Like, is he a good finisher? Or is he not going to be a good finisher at the NBA? I do like the fact that he is able to absorb contact well because he is so physically strong. I like the fact that he is an above the rim finisher. He has a great center of gravity. He's a you know very very strong ability to actually absorb that contact from bigger guys and then not get knocked backward by it but actually be able to uh, readjust in midair and then finish. He does need to be an elite finisher at the basket, though. Like, the guy that 
I've been I've been like almost comping him as the middle ground between Montrez Harrell and like Bam Adebayo to me. Um, both of those guys are really effective NBA players. Only one of them is someone that I really genuinely trust to finish games, uh, and that's obviously Bam. Um, the reason that I say that is like I think that Onyeka is much better on defense than Harrell is because he is a legitimate rim protector. Uh, USC was like six percentage points better uh, around the basket in regard to opponents' percentage at the rim. Whenever Onyeka was on the floor, he had a 10% block rate, which was like 20th in the country this year. Like, he is just a much better rim protector than Harrell. He's probably a better rim protector than Adebayo, but he doesn't move as well as Adebayo on the perimeter. He's just not that kind of quick twitch athlete. But he does... I think he rebounds well. I will say that like the defensive rebounding rate is not wildly high, but I think that's more of a function of playing next to Nick Rakosovic because anytime that you have Nick Rakosovic on the roster, you always have to make sure that he's the one that is playing the most important position, not the guy who's best at playing that position. But I digress. Um, he is a very effective offensive rebounder in a similar way to Harold is. He's a very good diver toward the basket. He can catch the ball at the foul line, take two dribbles and score in a very similar way to Harold, but he doesn't really pass it like out of bio, uh, doesn't really have the ball skills of an, uh, of an out of bio. Um, just not nearly as versatile on offense, not nearly, uh, as, uh, able to initiate sets on offense. So, I look at him and I'm just kind of like, okay, I think he probably is going to finish games at center because he's a good mover on the perimeter, uh, at least by center standards. And to me, that's like a pretty valuable player. But is there a chance that he's like not a starter and playing 26 minutes a game while being your closer at center? Yeah, I think there's like a pretty real chance that that happens, too. That's all fair. And I think what what concerns me a little bit about Okongwu, you brought up the 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 kind of middle ground between Harrell and Bam. I, I'm a big fan of Bam Adebayo. I think that his defensive his defensive effort and just impact this season has been huge for the Heat. And you know we we saw some of the differences in their in how things worked for them with him versus with Whiteside. And and I think they were just they weren't all the way there in terms of what what he can do. And there was some you know anomalous stuff in the early part when their defense looked amazing with opponents shooting and everything else. And once that toned down, then their defense didn't look as good. But I still like a lot of what Bam brings to the table. What concerns me about a Kong Wu, and this is sort of similar to the conversation we just had about Toppin, is that if he's a little bit worse than Bam, and I fully expect that because Bam is amazing, then that is it, it is a useful player, but it is not a super valuable one. And uh, yeah, unless they hit the like yeah, heights and, that Bam like has unless hit. to me yeah. unless you are a top fifteen center or do a specific something that is special that then you know kind of puts you in a different tier where it's not about how good you are overall; it's just how how you can be utilized. Then that type of player is, you know, you brought up 26 minutes a game. I mean, it could even be less than that. And I, the kind of the patchwork quilt idea of the center position, like the Warriors did um, with Zaza Pachulia and David West, and usually they would have somebody kind of toolsy or something. I think that is the model for teams without an elite talent moving forward because the other issue is one of supply. 
if you can, if there's so many people, then you don't need to pay those guys and you could just, you know, find the best players who work. Boban is an interesting example of that, like, you probably don't want Boban closing good games, but he can be, you know, a 15 minute a game guy and pay him a few million dollars a year and you're probably going to be fine. And I think that a Kongwu has to be a really amazing version of what he does to get beyond that level. And in a, in another draft class, I think I'll be more cognizant of this. And 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 it's it's weird because there are certain times where I've been higher on players in that general tier, like Jared Allen, for example. Like I really liked Jared Allen as a as a prospect, but I didn't see him as that different really than a Kongwu in terms of the like likelihood that they become a top tier center. And well, Jarrett was also six eleven or six ten with like a seven five wingspan. Like correct, Jarrett, Jarrett's like kind of a physical freak in ways that don't get discussed often enough and and also there is the the duality of i like jared allen more than other people did so that made me advocate for him but if jared allen had been taken in the 10 to 15 range like i wanted i would have been fine and that you know and that's kind of in a different draft i think that's kind of what i see a kongwu as anyway so it is a i do agree with you on that by the way yeah i I would rather take onyeka at like 10 than i would at in like a normal draft than I would at I think he's like number six on my board right exactly now. and and so uh, there are there are players every year that it's that I, I I kind of put a what I the way I describe it is a functional do not draft grade and what that means is not that I think they're bad or anything like that it's just I think that they're being taken high enough that if I were an actual general manager in that range I'd be like sure somebody else because somebody else can take that risk I'll let them I'll let them do it and then if he fell to a place that I was happy with it then I would take them like there, there are guys like that every single year, and I've been wrong on some of them before. Eric Gordon was a guy like that for me at one time, and I, I just didn't, I just didn't think he had it. And you know, and he he's made a great career for himself. I was wrong, um, and I so I thought that was interesting. And uh, I don't know how he fits into this, but he's the last player I want to talk about because the last player I've watched film on is Isaac Okoro, and Okoro <laughs> was fascinating to me because super fascinating player because. I you, you don't usually see somebody who it is so clear what they kind of the, the what their pathway to success in the NBA is but having that pathway be so narrow. So Akoro like he he does more with the ball in his hands. Like that was something I was intrigued by. Like there were some times at Auburn where he yeah. actually like ran a pick and roll or something, but I don't think my expectation is that he won't be so good at that that he will that you'll want him to do it a lot you know maybe in some second units or you know it's it, opportunistically but it does bode well for the two dribbles and a good decision hallmark for a spot up shooters that i think is so important if if you can do that but and he's a to me he's an active and intuitive um defender and his tools are they're not amazing but they are very good and so with a core, uh, I, I think he's, I think he's like a flat out awesome defender. See, I, I see okay. So like for me, I'll, I'll draw the comparison between him and like OG and Anobi. So like I, when I watched OG, I didn't, sure. actually, I didn't actually watch much of his film in Indiana because he was a little lower in the draft board. And I think that was the year I didn't watch a ton of film. But when I saw him in the summer, like, I'm just like, oh shit. Like, okay, he could do it. And Okoro is he's he's not quite at that level, but he's probably you know the the next tier down. 
And that's not a bad place to be. There aren't many players that have like OG's level of tools. But what I what I kind of it's not as much. Yeah, on I mean, defense. OG OG's going to make an All NBA defensive team like at some point in his career. I'm not quite there. I see him more in the like Mikhail Bridges type of group, where it's like I think he'll be a part of good defenses, but I don't know that he'll be the best player on that good defense. But it's possible. I, I'm not. I'm not. I think it's funny. I- I would also put Mikael Bridges as a guy that's going to make an all-defense team at some point. Yeah, too. I think that's you, just because I think they're going to get better. Is why they're not there yet, but like I think they're going to get, they're going to keep getting better at it. Yeah, they're just they're just aren't that many. I, I think we're not too far off. It's just a classification issue. But but Okoro on the offensive okay. end. So defense, you know, we have a di- disagreement opinion, but I don't think it's I don't think it's that big. He profiles, and it seems like almost destined. Though you never want to do that for somebody who's in their early twenties, or he might even be in his late teens. Um, is is the um yeah Okoro's 19 yeah is yeah. is that he just profiles as an extremely low usage player who has to hit jump shots to to make it work and I don't know if he's going to and it's there there are analogies to a bunch of other players in in this is a different respective guys that I that I really like in a lot of ways but it's just like you just sit there and go like well if that shot doesn't come around then all of this stuff doesn't matter nearly as much so yeah uh, I am similarly concerned to you. Uh, I would venture that Okoro is one of the players that I also have a functionally do not draft grade on um, insofar as he is going to go higher than where I have him. Yeah. So what that means, uh, let's, say, let's say, number... for example, like, yeah, you have him at 11, but like, let's say he's, let's yeah. say he's not falling lower than seven. You probably wouldn't take him at seven. Correct. Uh, yeah. I would take Devin Vassell over him. Um, I would take Tyrese Halliburton over him. And like, again, I'm not even like a wild Tyrese Halliburton fan either. I would take Killian Hayes over him. Um, so what I like about Okoro is that I think he is a power athlete that actually got slightly too big this year. Uh, if you watched him, because you were at Hoop Summit. No, I, you didn't go to Hoop Summit, Hoop Summit last year when he was there. So... He was a lot smaller there. I don't want to say like he was small, but he wasn't as he was probably like 6'6", 225 versus 6'6", 235. And it feels like he got a little bit top heavy this year, like in regard to the way that these like SEC training staffs always only care about bulk instead of like adding functional basketball athleticism. Right. Um I think that as he like kind of gets with trainers and gets with like a better NBA, you know, structure in regard to teaching basketball training, like this, that's going to help him become a better, quicker, higher impact defender. He doesn't have like crazy physical traits, but he's like six, six with a six, nine wingspan and has some of the better defensive instincts at 19 years old. Uh, off the ball that I've evaluated. He's really, really smart in the way he rotates. He's really, really smart in the risks that he takes uh, to try and force turnover. He's really, really good defender. I am similarly worried. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So, and I was going to say that often translates offensively. Guys that are smart and try hard defensively, even if they don't have a varied offensive game, generally they can figure out what they do well and do that well. And I do think he does that on offense as well. I think he is a very high feel for the game level player. I think that his uh, passing ability is actually quite strong. Uh, he he is someone that you can like attack a closeout. He's going to be able to hit like a you know he's he's in the corner pump fakes attack attacks a closeout. 
weak side wing comes to help on the uh, other side. He hits the kick out to the oppo wing and that guy knocks down a three, right? Um, I'm with you insofar as the reason that I am concerned is with the jump shot. I think his jump shot has a long way to go. He has like kind of a hunched shoulders thing. Uh, I think he doesn't get a ton of bend throughout his body and is going to basically need to like, I don't want to say it's like a total rewrite jump shot, but I think it's going to take some time. Only 67% at the line this year, 12.6 from three. I just think he needs so much work on the jump shot that he is almost, I don't want to say he's going to be a non-factor in like the Andre Robertson mold on offense early in his career, but I think he is going to be basically a guy that teams don't really respect to shoot the ball. And that's going to be a problem for him unless you're playing him as like your three that's like occasionally initiating sets. I think there's some upside there, but I don't think he's going to be able to do that early in his career. Some of the he's mostly a straight line driver when handling the ball. What he does have is he does have some Euro step ability. He does have some ball or body control ability after he picks up the ball and is like trying to navigate through the trees at the rim. But Again, I think that he's not really like that, oh, I'm going to shake a guy out of his shoes and like create a shot, right? I don't think he's that kind of guy. So I think that you're right. The offensive track that he has to hit, I think, is very narrow. Uh, and I think it basically every positive outcome for him on offense involves him having to at least hit 35 from three. Yeah, and it can be positive to have a single thing that you have to do, but it's so much pressure. And it, it's and also because the other pieces, like I think you and I both agree that the other pieces will fall into place beautifully if he can get there. Oh, if if he shoots, I don't know if he's an all star if he shoots, but like he's maybe just that level below. Like he's a he's a top fifty player in the NBA if he shoots, no doubt in my mind. It's I might I might not be quite that rosy just because of the importance of of like being able to generate good shots and he would still be you know he'd be good at other things and wouldn't be that but again we're you, but just just like good. think about yeah like think about the robust nature of what he does though and think about like maybe a better way to put it is he'd be like top fifty guy who is six foot defend base spectrum maybe top five the next level although he's strong enough to at least like stand up and knock it like posted into hell. Um, if we're talking he's shooting 35% from three, then the offensive side probably has come along because he does have the passing ability, does have the ability uh, to handle and finish at the rim at a high level. That's that's like what every team is looking for right now. Every team wants a guy that can really re- – that can shoot the ball, that can make good decisions, that can really defend, that can be a multi-positional defender. Like – Okoro is the kind of guy where you can toss him on Kawhi Leonard and I think he's not going to get like demolished on Kawhi because he's at least like physically strong enough to stand like he's not just going to get like buried into the mid-range where Kawhi can just rise over him for like a 12-foot mid-range jumper like I think he's strong enough within a couple of years maybe within like three years when he's 22 years old to be able to hold up against someone like that. I'm a little bit lower, but yeah, it's a possibility. 
and as you said, that type of player is exceedingly rare. And yeah, there's there's a lot a lot. Yeah, of, like, he's it's such a it's and, and to have a Koro but, uh, in, this, again, though, in this class is just makes it even it kind of makes yeah. it because then because because then it's it's not like you're comparing him at the top of the draft to like I don't know you know not obviously like the Towns tier or anything like that, but it's just like. Like let's say Aaron Gordon or something, some somewhere more in that range. This right. just this is just such a fundamentally different class. It's like, like I could see a team just being like, oh well, okay, you can a guy who could potentially defend on the wing. You compare him to like to Cole Anthony or to to Killian Hayes or even Obi Toppin, depending on the team and the circumstance. I could I think somebody's going to talk themselves into him really high, and it might work out. It very well could, but I it's such a challenge. Yeah, I'd put his over under on draft position right now at like six and a half. Yeah, I think. That, that's that's almost uh, exactly I, what I was thinking. Based on I haven't seen everyone yet, but based on what I've seen. Yeah. Um again though, like the big thing for me is I don't really think he's gonna shoot it. So all of this falls apart, which is why I have him at like eleven versus having him like if he's if I thought he was gonna shoot, like if I had the uh confidence in that, I would have him third or fourth. Yeah. But the fact that I don't think he's gonna shoot makes this a very, very difficult, uh, narrow translation, as you so eloquently put it. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. We can save that for future conversations, unless there's anything else that you think is particularly pressing. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else I want to ask you if you've watched. I, I've um, talked about everybody I've watched. So, Ooh, how much UCLA, because you're a UCLA alum, how much UCLA have you watched this year? Zero. Okay, but you never can, mind. You, you I was going to ask you what you thought of Chris Smith. But no, what I can we can we could save that for a future edition. I'll do I'll spend I'll spend some time watching. And we could talk about it. Okay, and then you haven't watched any Jaden McDaniels yet, have you? Only only as it pertained to a Kongwu because I watched a UW SC game. It was okay. inter- I'll, say, was I'll say it was interesting. In um, he actually I mean he I think he blocked a bunch of shots in that game. He was I didn't I didn't I don't recall him really blowing me away the way like I was very impressed with the limited amount I saw of Isaiah Stewart in that game. But I was like. I, I kind of was like, oh, I can get why people are interested in him, just like his brother, who I've been- Is that the game where USC, like, demolished him or demolished them, or is that the game that- That's the game where Washington, uh, where Washington won by, like, 25. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he had a really, really effective game in that game. Yes, McDaniels. he did. Yeah, what were you going to say about his brother? Well, I like, I've, li- I've liked what his brother did this year as well. Also, like, they are brothers, God, right? Yeah. Jalen and Jaden. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm not super high on Jaden. I'll, I'll need. To, I. I, I could watch... imagine not being high on his offense. I, I. That way it would kind of surprise me if I were high on his offense based on the limited amount I saw. Yeah. You watch. Watch. Watch more and let me know what you think. Yeah. Because I'm. Uh, I'm not quite as in. Yeah. As uh, some people seem to be. Yeah. Well. We'll. we'll, we'll yeah. We'll pick a couple guys. Maybe I'll do mini scouts on them before the next time we talk. That'll be fun. I'm in on that. That'd okay. be great. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic, and you can also listen to the Game Theory podcast and follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on and talking draft and everything else and lots, lots to discuss, even though there haven't been any games. And yeah, it's, it's weird how it can still be a, a somewhat busy time for, for some of us. I'm so thankful that I actually have that structure with my, within my life. If you want to support this show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. It's great for Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. If you want to be super awesome, you can actually leave a review both places. 
Also, word of mouth, extremely important. If you like this episode or the show in general, recommend it to people, however you see fit, in person, over the, I mean, hopefully safely distance if you do that, or, or over the internet, whatever you want to do. And subscribing, downloading every episode, that's extremely important for Real GM Radio and so many other shows because that allows you to see it when it gets in there. And this show's never going to come out on a set schedule because it's my availability and guests. So you can't get into a habit other than subscribing. And the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is checking out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code to get your sign-up bonus and, of course, tell them that you came from us. I still have a lot of irons in the fire working. I did a collaborative piece with Kelly Eco at The Athletic. I have a couple solo pieces in the works, including one that came out late last week about the hypothetical, hypothetical, that the cap drops to $107 million. Uh, there's a lot of potential things there. I wasn't using any reporting there, but it was it was a good exercise to do for me and working on a bunch of other things, including some stuff actually with San Vicini. So that'll be really exciting coming down the pike. And Dunked On still going strong five times a week. Did some really fun ones this week, including a reader's uh, suggestion of in our tournament for the best and worst decisions each franchise has made within the last five years. We did the East early in the week, did the West for uh, Friday so that you can listen to that. And then also um, did a battle plans for the Atlantic, which ended up creating some really fascinating discussions, including how to handle Philadelphia situation and Bede, Simmons, both, neither, who the Knicks core is, how the Nets handle all this. That was really good too. And he also did a podcast with Ethan and check out COVID Daily News, Nate's podcast there. And if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, or really, honestly, anything I do, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. Um, I don't promise that I'll respond, though I do really try to. And Real GM Radio will be back next week. I'm guessing from the limited amount I've talked with my likely guest that will be on the early side next week, but I can't make any promises in case something changes. But really looking forward to that. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.